Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Legal Geeks. Hey, Josh, it's been a while. How are you? I'm grand. How are you? I'm good, and I'm very excited because, as you can see from our shirts, we are here tonight to discuss a topic that's close to both of our hearts, Star Trek. woo <laughs> And specifically, of course, Star Trek Into Darkness, the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie that came out a few weeks ago. You and I have both done posts now on Star Trek. Um, it did break my heart that I had to wait a few weeks to see it, but I'm excited that I did get to see it, and we can talk about it today. And I know you wanted to start off with a topic that is central to the Star Trek universe, which is the Prime Directive. Now, I have blogged about this before, but... There was a four-part comic book series prior to Darkness coming out called <laughs> Countdown to Darkness that dealt with former captain Robert April, who was, from the animated series, the first captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> and what they did in the comic book, he was still the first captain of the Enterprise, but not the one Kirk has, meaning that April was captain of 1701 from the original series, which apparently, this is my view, was decommissioned and they, you know, built Kirk's Enterprise with the same whole number and same name. Whoa, that gets complicated, and that's way beyond my track knowledge. So, Countdown to Darkness dealt with April, who had gone native on a planet, involved in a civil war, trying to keep one side of the Civil War from being slaughtered. And all kinds of shenanigans take place, but one of the gunrunners helping April, they capture her ship. Her name is Mud, which should trigger a few memories, but it's her ship that they use to go to Kronos and into darkness. Oh, wow. Nice. So a nice little Easter egg for the hardcore fans, eh? Yes. So that dealt with all kinds of fun issues with trying to help natives from getting slaughtered, which is how the movie opens because they do everything in secret and inadvertently turn into deities for the alien race that they save, <laughs> which was the entire point of the Prime Directive to not have that sort of thing happen. <laughs> But it's really cool when they got to bring the Enterprise up out of the ocean. You know, that was a very dramatic moment. Like a submarine, but only much more dramatic. Well, they'd never done it before. No. And you got, you got to respect Abrams going, all right, what haven't we seen? What's a cool <laughs> hat trick? I know. Sure, we could have them in orbit, but why not submerge them instead? I mean, it, it looked way cool. Sure, they had to swim really deep. That's like submerging a an aircraft carrier. Yeah. So it was. I, she's big. So yeah, it was very very fun. But that's that's a fun little homage to how the beginning starts with uh -huh. saving, the na saving the natives from the volcano. I, well, very cool, and you noticed, of course, and I have to admit, I can't think of it off the top of my head, that there were e-discovery issues in the Star Trek Into Darkness. What were they? At the beginning, when Khan offers to save the little girl who's sick, and the operative yeah. from Section 31 blows up the London office, okay, he sends an email, and there's the e-discovery issue. Now, granted, that's they don't... Right. All right, that's right. The computer forensic side of it comes in Scotty, 
you know, doing forensic analysis on the transwarp teleporter to figure out where Khan beamed to. <laughs> and so there's the computer forensic side of it. <laughs> so all e-discovery experts can go see this and claim it's a tax write-off for research purposes. So there Woo! you go. <laughs> I like that. Those are both very good catches. You're right. Now I realize that was good. Yeah, that was uh that was as a parent I was like, Oh god, what an awful spot to be in. So that really that moved me. So I wasn't thinking so much about the email as that poor father, but um yeah, that was a gut wrenching moment. Who decided to make orphans out of a lot of other children right, instead. Yes, I know. Let's again this is where I started to give up I guess to save his little girl. It's a whole it's a horrible thing. You're right, it's awful, but I don't ever want to think about what do you do in a situation like that. So we're gonna move on to the more lighthearted parts. Let, let's talk about the shower scene that was cut out of the movie. <laughs> My personal beef with the movie is they cut out the gratuitous hot male scene. They leave in the hot female scene with Alice Eve, but they t take out Benedict's hot shower scene. What's they up with that? They had already had Kirk topless, you know. And so brief, and you're distracted by the girls with the tails that you really, you know, I'm like, <laughs> that was too brief. It was not enough. I'm like, we needed, the shower scene was more the matchup to the, the underwear scene, I would argue. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> you know, Alice Eve and her. Josh, the important things here. <laughs> yeah, I, was Alice Eve in her underwear important? I mean, it's not like that happens to me ever. However, with that stated, uh, lawyers don't see that happen. But it does happen to Captain Kirk a lot. Let's be fair, and you know, I'm sympathetic, but uh, I still say we should have had a shower scene. And you, you can hope for that. You know, there was less underwear in this one than in the first one. And so, when you, you know, the green-skinned girl and... Right, right. I'm trying to think. I remember that. All right, interesting. We can do an analysis, a side-by-side -side analysis. I feel like we're getting into Mr. Skin territory here, so we'll, we'll back away. <laughs> and the other factor is virtually all the guys cry at some point in the movie. Do they? As Pike's dying, he cries. Yeah. yeah. Kurt cries. Spock cries. Scotty cries. Yeah. All right, well, I, that's something. So, and few people notice that or seem to care about it, but compared to the original series, that they they didn't do that. Part of it was it was the 1960s, and men didn't cry back then. Tear ducts Ooh. were sealed shut. Uh, <laughs> you just drank and smoked some more. Um, that's I'm a good point. So, before people start throwing rocks too heavily, I, I would point out that this was the emotionally sensitive Star Trek movie uh, in comparison to many of the others. All right, I like that. So, what did you think of the movie? Did you like it? I saw it at 12.01 the night that it came out and loved it. Uh, Rip-roaring good time, good space adventure, and while I'm very sympathetic to the desire to see a strong female lead, mm -hmm. the stories have always been about Kirk and Spock, or Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That's the formula that works, and everyone else is part of an ensemble cast. All the main characters had heroic moments, from whether it was Sulu on the bridge, 
to Scotty on the Vengeance, to Chekhov in the engine room, saving Kirk and Scotty, uh, Uhura having a two heroic moments, being on Kronos and helping save the day in the fight with Khan, and being the one who can make clear-headed decisions when she needed to. So they all had important moments because it's an ensemble cast, and that's what you do. Yes, and I understand that the original ensemble was mainly men, and so if they want to stay true to the original series, they need to do that. However, as I pointed out, um, one, the Alice Eve character, who was supposed to be very strong and smart, really did spend most of her time as the open mouth, breathless, you know, damsel in distress. I mean, she really overall was not a very strong character, so I found that annoying. I also think, I'm like, look, even Star Wars, I mean, you've got, you know, Leia, Chewie, um, you know, Han, and Luke, but you still manage to have like uh, you know some of the generals and leaders and everything be women and more women in other roles so even if they're not central to the story you still have more strong females who at least are portraying leaders in a movie even if they're not central to the the actual story so I feel that's where there's still a lot of um, everyone still you know for the most part a man like you did see some women in the room when they had all the Starfleet commanders there before uh, you know Khan came up but you like only brief glimpses of any women in those things, and it was very minor. So I still felt like you could have actually had more women in roles like that. They may not be central to the story, but they're at least still depicting strong women who are hopefully in the future, you know, 50-50 representation with the men in all those kind of roles, as opposed to still really being a pretty small part of the overall movie. Yeah, the, the last movie I thought had more female bridge officers who had, at least had lines, mm-hmm. like as Vulcan was disintegrating, and doing the analysis of they needed to get away, they're just, you know, they, they were more in the background and more with right. lines, you know, who, who were actually saying things. Now, I do want to see it again and pay attention to it, since I did see it at midnight, but I do have pretty good, <laughs> I do have pretty good recollection of things. The other half, it would have been nice to have had an Easter egg when they had the captains and the first mates gathering in Starfleet Command. Yeah. To have had one of the captains be Pike's number one from the cage, you know, the first episode. Because in the the prime universe, he eventually ends up as a captain, or as a commodore, and is a fairly high-ranking individual. And so since Pike was an admiral, they could have thrown her in as an Easter egg uh, for the hardcore geeks. And maybe the brunette who was getting shot was her. I I don't know. But that would have been nice to... Uh, to have had Machel, uh, Machel Barrett's original character uh, in you know, the film as an Easter egg. And they still might, and you know, there will be sequels. They'll, yeah. they'll keep making more. This was a very good movie. But I understand the issue with it would have been nice seeing more stronger female leads, and it would have been nice if it passed the Bechtel test. But mm-hmm. I understand... I understand why we didn't see, you know, uh, Carol Marcus and Uhura in the same scene because they kind of cancel each other out. And yeah. by having them, having them in their own scenes, that way they're the, you know, the lead female in that scene who, whether it's saving Dr. McCoy from blowing up or keeping everyone from getting slaughtered by Klingons, I understand why they, you know, they kept them separate. Right. Or, um, I understand why they did that. Maybe the next but, one. Hopefully there will be more hope. Maybe J.J. Abrams will be a little bit more sensitive to some of these issues now in the next one. Yeah, I don't think it was intentional. I think they, they follow the original formula. You know, these guys are really good geeks, 
and follow. I know, but they don't obviously. I mean, they totally restarted the universe, and it is what forty years later. I mean, this is always one of my issues with sci-fi. I love sci-fi, and I actually love a lot of classic sci-fi and sci-fi novels. But the struggle always is that, like in John Carter, they did try to address that. Is that you know. Men were writing some of these stories 40, 50, 60, 70, you know, 100 years ago in the case of Edgar Rice Burroughs. And so women at that time were perceived differently, unfortunately. And you do need to, you know, they update other things for a modern sensibility. You need to be aware of that issue, too. I mean, you know, John Carter, they at least tried to make Deja Thor uh, much physically stronger and, you know, smarter, more scientific kind of thing to address some of that issue because it does get old, you know, especially as a sci-fi geek girl to still just not see myself represented that often um, on screen, you know, in some of these classics that I love, but it's annoying. Oh, think of DC Fontana and writing the original stories for the original series and having to go by her initials so that way no one would know that it was a woman writing them. So, so I mean, the show was progressive at the time in the 60s. Right. And it next generation. those boundaries. Yeah, but I don't, while I'm very sensitive to that fact and completely understand it, I also look at the formula that they were following. You know, that's kind of like saying, God, I wish the Hunger Games had more male roles in it. Again, I already addressed that, and I said I understand that the main, that they're not going to change the main cast, but there's still other ways to compensate by making other, again, not central to the story, not changing the ensemble that was really there, but you can still do other things within the context of the movie that address some of those issues without disturbing that original formula. I'll keep fighting this one. I feel pretty passionately about it. I love JJ, and he, of course, has a history of doing some, you know, strong female things. I mean, look at Sidney Bristow. I mean, he can do great, strong women when he wants to. Um, so I just think, you know, again, maybe it is, is you get a little bit lazier, like, well, this is how it was in the original Star Trek, and so you don't think about, okay, you know, we need to, it's 40, 40 how many years later now? Um, you know, we need to change some of these things, almost 50? It's coming up on 50, Wow, but... But anyway, let's, we can drop this now. Let's talk a little bit now about what your post is on and the vengeance issue. And, um, of course, my thought was, were those really even Star Trek or Starfleet people on the vengeance? Um, Definitely. They were from Section 31. So they were part of Starfleet. They were part of the secret batch of Starfleet. So their orders had to come from someplace. And the, you know, Admiral Marcus being the chief of operations, would be the natural one for those orders to come from. You now run into the issue of a military person trying to set policy when you have an elected government. Mm-hmm. So that's a little little problem that we have with that. Deciding to go to war with the barbarian Klingons, well, they kind of are barbarian Klingons. <laughs> it's, it's part of their charm. I mean, we have to see bat blitz again and and birds of prey and hand-to-hand combat and all kinds of fun stuff. And so that's actually pretty impressive. (laughs) Uh, But when you look at the fact that warship, which was three times the size of the Enterprise, which is Mm -hmm. in this universe about a 1,000 feet, uh, if I read all the tech stuff correctly. So you're looking at something that's kind of like three aircraft carriers put together. Whoa. So that's big. And mean, and and they built it to start a war. And Mm -hmm. the opening orders are, let's go find the Enterprise, because we wanted them to be the patsies to start the war, and then we're going to destroy them. Being Starfleet officers, granted, in the 
the uh, spy branch that very few people knew about. Uh, how do you deal with that? And looking uh, looking at old military law stuff going back to you know, the 1920s, wow. uh, other cases other cases in the 1950s. Uh, you didn't even have to touch Nuremberg or Milai to right. see where this comes from. But the the test to look at is soldiers kill people. That's part of the job. And you can find out if the homicide was justifiable or not by looking at the orders. And if the acts of a so soldier have been done in good faith and without malice and compliance with the orders of a superior are justifiable, unless such acts are manifestly beyond the scope of that authority and such that the man of ordinary sense and understanding would know that them to be illegal. So, when cases have come up, one was, I think, Korea, where they yeah. had a guy and they were had him lying down on the floor and the officers decided, let's kill him. And they told the enlisted man to take him outside and shoot him. He, was, he became part of the conspiracy by doing that. Applying mm -hmm. that to the vengeance grill. Going, all right, we just built a super secret warship. We named it Vengeance, which is something we normally don't do. Yeah. <laughs> that only within the Starfleet. Uh... Yeah, yeah. It's, we, we, we don't do that here. You know, why not just name it Bismarck? No. You know, it's, yeah. So we don't <laughs> normally do that. And now let's go kill some of our own countrymen because we're going to start mm -hmm. a war. So... As they look at those orders, they're not coming, most likely not coming from the civilian government. If they were, that's no. a whole bunch of other issues, but then we start looking at whatever impeachment uh, pol uh, policies and practices and procedures would exist in the Federation. But looking at that, there is no way any of those officers, if they survived, could say with a straight face, I was just following orders which involved mm -hmm. us destroying the Enterprise to kill everybody on board and then to start a war. To, yeah, to kill them like a disabled ship, too. I mean, again, this isn't even they had started engaging in some battle, which they would have provoked, which would not have been right. But, I mean, they were going after a disabled ship, and they were going to destroy it, even if they just hung there in space completely helpless. I mean, that's uh, as cold as you can get. Yes. And they did the old-fashioned violent decompression and... Uh, battle scenes that we haven't really seen in Star Trek other than the 2009 relaunch mm -hmm. with the violent decompression and people getting sucked out into the vacuum of space. Yes. And that happened at least twice uh, in this movie. So <laughs> yes. It was pretty violent in that sense. So there, there was a lot there. There was, it was obviously awesome, the whole Scotty on the vengeance, because I was really upset at first when he was not on the Enterprise and when he left. I mean, the bar scene was great, but still, I was like, you can't not have Scotty on the Enterprise. But having him show up on the vengeance like that was, uh, was an awesome, like, holy cow kind of moment. And as a nice homage to Star Trek Three, you know, he sabotages the ship, just as he did on Excelsior. Yep. Or would do. Uh, this is where time travel and alternate realities get confusing. <laughs> and then there's the bigger issue of how many triples does Dr. McCoy keep just to experiment on? 
I know. I'm like, have they already had their issues with the triples? Is he aware of what he's getting himself into here? I, that was my thought too with the triples. I'm like, is this pre the trouble with triples or is this post and he knows what he's doing kind of thing? Or I'm like, is this just another ticking time bomb waiting to go off? In the comic, and I don't read all of this comic. I just read the countdowns and and two other series. Uh, but I don't read the mainline comic. But they addressed the Tribble homeworld and mm-hmm. issues with Tribbles in the comics. I haven't read them, okay. but I, I, I've been told that. Huh. So... Well, I have to tell you, it's actually been a while since I've gone back to watch the original Star Trek movies, and I really do need to see them, and I am, it's been a long time since I've seen Wrath of Khan, because the whole uh, earwig or whatever, the thing that went in the ear always freaked me out, so I did not like that one as a kid, so I always stayed away from that one, but UW is actually showing it on the terrace next Monday night, and so I'm going, and I am very excited to see that, um, especially now, of course, with this whole, obviously, you know, it won't tie in completely, but it will be kind of fun to see it after having seen this reboot and reintroduction of Khan. On Netflix, Star Trek II has jumped up in popularity because people people are watching it. And uh, one of my friends who's an attorney down in Southern California, she's like, I just remember the movie with the whales. And oh, I was like, well... Yeah. I love the whale one. <laughs> That was four, the most commercially successful. But if you watch two... And did two, actually direct that? I think Le- Leonard Nimoy actually directed four. He did. He re- directed three and four. Oh, I didn't know he did three, too. Yep, that was the first one he directed. Shatner directed five. Was that the, und- was that the Undiscovered Country, the God one? Yes. Well, yes. it was Final Frontier, which was the God one. Undiscovered. So six was oh, Harv Bennett, which was Undiscovered Country. And that's with the Shakespeare quoting Klingons, right? Yes. That's actually my favorite. I love that one. It's a very good one. Oh, it is with the whole lock and load and fire and oh, I get chills. Yeah. <laughs> so the homages they did to Wrath of Khan were exceptional. And this, you can't have a movie with Khan without someone screaming Khan at the top of their lungs. <laughs> Yes. You just can't. It's it's just not uh, brilliantly done. So I enjoyed it. Uh, I respect the issue with uh, Carol Marcus should have done more. She, I mean, mm-hmm. Alice Eve is a very attractive woman, but it would have been, and she is reading the audio book, but that would be nice if she had, had just been a touch stronger because the original yeah. Car- Carol Marcus had a little more gravitas to her. Huh. All right. Interesting. I did not know that. But she'd also been, you know, had a kid with James D. Kirk, and probably the breakup and everything probably would have hardened someone. Yeah, I could see Kirk. Yeah, that would, yes, yes. On the flip side, she did see her dad have her, his skull crushed in front of oh, her. So I know. I try not to think about that part. That really is. Even as bad as he was at the end, that is still incredibly gruesome. Yeah, okay. See, that's a bad between that and the earwig thing. I'm like, Khan is very unpleasant. Um, I think I need to go watch the whale one now. <laughs> watch Spock swim with the killer whales. <laughs> go snuggle with a tribble, and uh, uh, you're in your safe place in the hollow deck. Ah, well, Josh, as always, it is fun to talk to you, and it is always awesome to discuss Star Trek. I am glad that I finally got to see it, and uh, yeah, I still, I did, you know, loved it no matter what, so just had small nitpicks with it. 
It was a lot of fun, and I look forward to seeing it at least twice more in the theater, because <laughs> why not? I mean, really. <laughs> Definitely. I think I need to go see it after I see Wrath of Khan. I think I need to go watch Wrath of Khan at the Terrace and then go watch it. You should also watch Space Seed which was the original series episode where Khan was introduced. Oh, all right. Because this Khan was more like Space Seed Khan than Wrath of Khan Khan, because oh. he hadn't been stuck on City Alpha 5 for 15 years and the death <laughs> of his beloved wife. All right, look at that. See, now that's true Trekkie knowledge to know that sort of thing. This is why I cannot call myself a true Trek. I'm a wannabe, but I don't know that sort of level of detail. So that's a good tip. Thank you, Josh. It's, it's what we do, and this is normal dinnertime discussion when I'm with my family, <laughs> so it's perfectly normal. It is. I love it. All right, well, Josh, live long and prosper. Thumb out, Jessica. Thumb out. Oh, oh, look at me. I'm so bad. I didn't even know. Live long and prosper. All right. Thank you. I'm a fraud. 